It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. I have to make a confession right here and right now. I once bought a MyPillow. Now, this was years ago when Mike Lindell was mainly famous as an infomercial pitch man for his pillows, and I have trouble sleeping, and it's a pretty good pillow. But now that he is, you know, one of the leading conspiracy theorists when it comes to the 2020 election, I'm just looking at this piece. Oh, he went on television, Real America's Voice, and said, uh, we already have the pieces of the puzzle. We have enough evidence of election fraud of the 2020 election to put everyone in prison for life, 300 and some million people. Now, that's a pretty audacious claim, considering the American population is 300 and 30 million people. And by the way, where would we get the prison space to house all these people since the overwhelming majority of people who are presumably, you know, over five years old were part of this election conspiracy? Now, maybe this was a little bit of hyperbole, or he's saying he could jail the, virtually the entire American population, but doesn't really plan to. Uh, if it, I, I don't even, you know, enough said. Um, here's some other stuff. You know, I led the podcast yesterday with this notion, this invented fictional notion that nonetheless went viral that, uh, you know, Hillary Clinton is kind of maneuvering to possibly run in 2024 and, you know, she'd have a pretty good chance and all of that. So as anybody who listened yesterday knows, this all began and it became this huge drudge headline and CNN did a story and Fox had a half dozen stories on it. Uh, with the Wall Street Journal op-ed piece by Doug Schoen, a uh, longtime Democratic strategist who once, you know, back in the day, worked for the Clintons, and a former New York City politician named Andrew Stein. And it wasn't just that they were saying, hey, we think this is a good idea. There was a sentence or two in there that said, Hillary is, you know, um, creating a structure where she might be able to do it. And it, it, it indicated that she might be exploring it. That's what I think gave it fuel. Well, Doug Schoen was on with Laura Ingham last night. And, you know, rather than talk about the possibility, you know, how what a, what a ridiculous, um, far-fetched notion this is, he was just making the case. He says, look, people reinvent themselves. I think Hillary, in the land of the blind, you need the one-eyed man. She's clearly better than anything the Democrats have. Biden is a failed president, he said. Kamala Harris, arguably worse. Mayor Pete, I think that's a non-starter. So Secretary Clinton, in the same way that Richard Nixon repositioned himself in 1968 after his defeats in 60 and 62, is my party's best hope. Well, okay, fine. But Richard Nixon had been the vice president. And it was a remarkable comeback in 68 after he lost the presidency to JFK uh, and then lost a race two years later for governor of California. He also happened to be a white man. And I'm not saying this means a woman can't be elected president or any of that. But, you know, Hillary Clinton lost in 2016 what most Democrats thought was a very winnable race against political neophyte, celebrity businessman, reality TV show star, Donald Trump. The party now is going to back her to run against Trump again. Presumably Trump 
Is the GOP nominee? I don't think so. And this brings up another, you know, I guess some journalists are bored sitting around saying, hey, what, what, can we, what can we conjure up here? What scenarios can we explore to break through the static? So Tom Friedman, you know, Pulitzer Prize winning New York Times foreign affairs columnist, he's making an analogy to Israel where there's a kind of a coalition government in the sense that there's an agreement to trade the premiership between two political parties. And says, in that same vein... Why not, in 2024, Biden-Cheney? In other words, President Biden should run for election. He should dump Kamala Harris and have this kind of unity ticket with Liz Cheney. Now, I think it was kind of a thought experiment, uh, you know, so much so that I don't have to point out that, you know, most Democrats may be applauding the fact that Liz Cheney is now on the January 6th committee, that she is accusing Donald Trump of spreading the big lie, and so forth. But she's still a Cheney. Uh, in other words, on policy positions, she's still a very conservative Republican. The idea that she could even be Joe Biden's president or that her presence on the ticket would help Joe Biden just seems to me to be, uh, you know, it's not, I wouldn't even call it like fantasy football because fantasy football has to have some relation to reality, how the players actually perform. Anyway, uh, Kamala Harris was on the Today Show this morning with Craig Melvin. And by the way, she clearly is out there in the last 10 days doing more major league interviews. And I think that's a great thing. I think Joe Biden should emulate his VP. Uh, she's not just going on, you know, with Charlemagne the God and people she thinks are going to be easy on her. And it was a contentious interview times. Anyway, she was asked about uh, this, and she said, well, I, I don't have time to worry about the high-class gossip, and that's fine. I mean, she shouldn't dignify it by getting into it. It's not that anybody is saying that Liz Cheney has a chance to be on the ticket, or that Biden is seriously considering dumping his vice president, who happens to be the first black vice president, first female vice president, and first uh, vice president of Asian descent. So I think, you know, even though she has had a very rough year. I think it would be very hard for Joe Biden to get rid of her. Okay, uh, Republican Congressman Warren Davidson of Ohio is the latest to complain about COVID-19 vaccine mandates by comparing it to the Nazis during the Holocaust. Can we please just stop with these analogies? And not just on COVID, on anything. It drives me up the friggin' wall. Uh, so what did he do? He uh, went on Twitter Congressman Davidson shared a photo of a health pass that people under Nazi rule were forced to carry, adding, this has been done before, parentheses, not parentheses, uh, sorry, hashtag, do not comply. He suggested that unvaccinated people are being dehumanized and segregated as Jewish people were. I mean, look, you want to criticize vaccine mandates, fine, have at it, say anything you want, don't bring in the Holocaust. And of course, this has brought him uh, a lot of criticism from Jewish organizations. Uh, you know, a few weeks ago, Insider had a really good expose about stock trading by members of Congress and those who hadn't uh, reported on time or who had apparent conflicts with the committees they sat on. It was really good. And nobody seemed to care. I mean, it didn't get much pickup in the journalism world. Well, now, HuffPost has a piece saying a growing number of Democrats are calling for what I think is the right idea, a ban on individual stock trading by members of Congress and their spouses and their top aides. Um, so Democrats like uh, Senator Mark Kelly and the new senator from Georgia, John Ossoff, uh, introducing a bill to just bar it completely. 
You know who doesn't want this is Nancy Pelosi, who it so happens has a husband who's in, in the investment field and is a zillionaire and trades a lot of stocks. Um, and uh, I think this is starting to get some media traction, some political traction. It still has a long way to go on the idea that members of Congress are voluntarily going to do this. I think it would help their reputation collectively, but they don't want to give it up. So what does Kevin McCarthy have to say about this? The House Republican leader said that if the Republicans take over the House in November and he becomes Speaker, then he's considering such a ban. Well, why not cooperate with the Democrats now? Because he'd rather have the issue for when he, which is a very strong likelihood, becomes the Speaker of the House. All right, getting down to business here. Story number one, we have a nice little segue here with the House Minority Leader. Because yesterday, and this was treated as just explosive news uh, by CNN and MSNBC, the House January 6th committee has requested that Kevin McCarthy voluntarily provide information about his communications with Donald Trump and Mark Meadows uh, before, during, and after the Capitol riot. So the committee sends a letter. I, I mean, you know, I've complained about uh, all these requests, every subpoena, every request, getting uh, a ridiculous amount of attention. Not that it's not important. Not that it shouldn't be covered. Not that uh, January 6th was not, you know, a terrible tragedy for a country and it should, of course, be investigated. But I got to say, you take a step back and you have the Democratic majority uh, with, a, you know, it's Nancy Pelosi appointed all the members of that committee including the two anti-Trump Republicans, the aforementioned Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger, uh, to do this investigation. And now going after the leader of the other party in the House is pretty remarkable. So uh, the letter to Meadows says, we want to have all your communications with Trump before, during, and after, or during and after. Uh, Quote, we must also learn about how the president's plans for January 6th came together and all the other ways he attempted to alter the results of the election. In advance of January 6th, you reportedly explained to Mark Meadows and the, for, that the, and the former president that objections to the certification of electoral votes on January 6th was doomed to fail. McCarthy said, nice try, not happening, not doing it. Uh, he said the committee's only objective is it's to attempt to damage its political opponents. And he said, you know what, this panel wants to criticize me or to interview me about public statements that have been shared with the whole world. That part is true. And private conversations not remotely related to the violence that unfolded on the Capitol. I have nothing else to add. Also, Kayleigh McEnany, former Trump press secretary, now a Fox News uh, contributor, uh, did voluntarily uh, speak with the committee on Wednesday, yesterday. Okay. So in his letter, uh, Benny Thompson, the chairman of this panel, said that McCarthy, and this is news to me, may also have discussed with President Trump the potential he would face a censure resolution, impeachment, or removal under the 25th Amendment. It also appears you may have identified other possible options, including President Trump's immediate resignation from office. Now, I have no idea whether Kevin McCarthy did any of those things, but I have not Maybe I missed it. I haven't read any reports saying sources say McCarthy had this discussion. I mean, obviously, I, we all know that McCarthy called Trump and while the riot was going on and says, you got to call these people off. you got to say something. you got to speak out. People's lives are in danger here. We also remember that on January 7th and in the immediate aftermath, 
that Kevin McCarthy took on the president of his own party, said that um, there was no question that Donald Trump had played an important role in what became the violence at the Capitol. Uh, he was very critical. And then he went down to Mar-a-Lago. They made up. And since then, uh, you know, he's mostly been playing defense for the former president. Uh, so this really escalates. So, okay, so McCarthy says no. So what does the panel do? Does the panel issue a subpoena against the House Minority Leader? If the panel doesn't issue a subpoena, does that show to all other potential people that may want to testify that nothing really happens? Uh, yes, in the case of Steve Bannon and in the case of Mark Meadows, uh, they have been declared in criminal contempt. Only in the case of Bannon has the Justice Department taken up or at least started an investigation. So I don't know where this goes, but it's a pretty remarkable situation. Uh, look, McCarthy is the guy who didn't want there to be a bipartisan commission. He torpedoed that, and that led Pelosi to create this, you know, clearly Democrat-dominated and Liz Cheney-supported committee. So to a lot of people, it probably does look like this committee is uh, an effort by the Democrats to blacken the reputation of future nominee or possibly future nominee Donald Trump, of possibly future Speaker Kevin McCarthy and other Republicans. Jim Jordan also not cooperating. Um, it's a fascinating political spectacle. I don't know what uh, where it ends up. And by the way, Lindsey Graham, who you know used to play golf with Trump and became, even though he ran against him for president in 16, became a close confidant and friend of Donald Trump. Well, he went on with Sean Hannity last night, and he said that he, Lindsey, might not back Mitch McConnell for another term as leader, as either Senate Majority Leader or Senate Minority Leader, depending on the outcome in 2022. Trump, as you may know, has just been conducting an all-out war with McConnell, uh, calling him a loser on NPR. He's called him worse. He's called him uh, old and kind of decrepit. I mean, it's gotten really, really personal. So uh, Graham was asked uh, about McConnell. And he said the following, um, if you're going to be the Republican leader in the House or Senate, you have to have a working relationship with President Donald Trump. He's the most consequential Republican since Ronald Reagan. It's his nomination if he wants it, and I think he'll get reelected in 2024. I like Senator McConnell. He worked well with President Trump to get a bunch of judges, including three Supreme Court justices on the bench. They got the tax cut passed working together. So this is, he's not saying he's going to vote against them. He's saying it's kind of, it's kind of a brushback pitch. You know, Mitch, just know I might not support you. I might have other people who are very close who don't want to cross Donald Trump who might not support you after 2022. Um, unless you have a good working relationship. They have no relationship. They haven't talked, I think, in a year. So how does that get resolved? I don't know. But interesting move by Lindsay. And one other thing here. You know, I talked at length yesterday about uh, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris going down to Atlanta and giving the big speech on voting rights, and they want to change the filibuster, and they want to get those voting rights bills passed, and with all of this rhetoric from the president about, are you on the side of George Wallace and Bull Connor, or are you on the side of, you know, freedom and democracy and all of that? Well, here's Dick Durbin. He's the Senate Majority Whip, the number two guy for the Dems. Senator Durbin said yesterday on CNN with Jake Tapper, that President Biden may have, quote, gone a little too far in his rhetoric when he compared lawmakers who don't support changing the Senate filibuster rules 
to pass the voting rights to some of the noted segregationists uh, that I just mentioned. And he went on to say Joe Biden came to the U.S. Senate on a civil rights platform. That's why he ran in the first place, and he shows emotion. I'm glad he did. But, you know, essentially, Durbin couldn't defend Biden's rhetoric. And this is the question so many people are asking. First of all, why take on this fight? Not that it's not an important issue. Of course it's an important issue. But he can't win it unless he somehow can magically get Kirsten Cinema and Joe Manchin to change their position that they've stated many, many, many times on the filibuster. And if so, so is it just for show, to show the activist base and the progressives that he's willing to take this on, even though he ends up losing? And he uses rhetoric and essentially says, if you're a moderate Democrat who doesn't want to change the filibuster, you're like Bull Connor? Well, that went too far for Durbin. All right, story number two. Uh, The latest coronavirus numbers. 781,000 average new cases. 1,827 new daily deaths. That's the average. So almost almost 2,000 people are dying a day of COVID-19. Despite these stories about how Omicron is so much milder, I've read a number of experts saying, no, don't say that. It may not be as deadly as the Delta variant, but it's no picnic. Um, by the way, I just also saw something in the AP urging, and I talked about this a couple of weeks ago on Media Buzz, saying we're not going to any, telling, you know, it's like put out a, a memo to its reporters and editors saying we're not going to do any more stories that are solely based on this county or this state or this country having broken a record or having, uh, you know, very, very high new cases of coronavirus. In other words, the media, because Omicron is different and because the Biden administration is, you know, kind of focusing on different things, wants to stop the counting. Now, also, because there's a severe undercount because there's no ability for authorities to know about the at-home tests. So a lot of people are going to criticize that as well. Yeah, sure, now that it's inconvenient for President Biden, uh, the AP, which, you know, so many newspapers across the country and other news outlets use, saying, well, let's not focus on the numbers so much. In any event, the good news here is there are pieces in the Washington Post and New York Times that maybe the Omicron variant has peaked. Uh, the Times says number of new COVID-19 cases in New York City was one of the first places to get hard hit. It rose more than 20-fold in December, but in the past few days it has flattened. In New Jersey and Maryland, because uh, we've been very hard hit here in the Washington area, number of new cases have fallen slightly this week. In Boston, the amount of COVID virus detected in wastewater, I didn't know that was a thing you could measure, has dropped by about 40% after reaching a peak around New Year's Day. So these are hopeful signs that after just tearing through the population, that finally we are either at or about to surpass or have surpassed the peak of Omicron, and now we'll start heading down. And if the experience of other countries is any indication, maybe that drop will come very quickly. I certainly hope so. Um, it also could just mean that it has spread so quickly that the people who are most vulnerable to COVID have already gotten it, and thereby there's a limited number of people, not who don't have COVID, but who are the most vulnerable to something like Omicron, who uh, might get it. Don't go anywhere. More Buzzmeter coming your way in just a moment. Let me move on to number three. This is fascinating to me. Dan Pfeiffer was um, the communications director and ultimately the counselor to President Obama. I dealt with him numerous times in the Obama White House. He's now uh, a big uh, anti-Trump 
uh, you know, he's got a podcast and a big voice of the Democratic left. And he also has a Substack column. And on this Substack column, which I happen to read, I thought he made some interesting points from the left point of view, talking about Donald Trump being off social media. So if you're in the journalism business like me, and you get, you know, five statements a day in your inbox, and Donald Trump says this, and Keep America Great News says this, and you see some of this get picked up on cable, you have the impression that Trump is still very much out there, despite the fact that he has been banned to this day by Twitter, by Facebook, by Instagram, and other social media outlets. So Pfeiffer is saying Trump's banishment from social media may be good for the world, but it's an obstacle for democratic efforts to hold on to our majorities. Well, how can that be? I mean, it's kind of muffling his voice, right? When Trump was on Twitter, Pfeiffer argues, he used to dominate the conversation. It was his strength, but also his greatest weakness. It got him in constant trouble. He stepped on his message. He reminded everyone what they didn't like about him. It was almost always, he says, the first point that voters brought up in focus groups. I wish he wouldn't tweet so much. I wish he wouldn't insult people so much on Twitter. Um, and so now, Trump's inability over the last year, says Pfeiffer, to remind the world why they hate him was a gift. His statements attacking members of his own party for insufficient loyalty to the big lie received a fraction of the country that a tweet saying the exact same thing would elicit. The Twitter ban has created a false impression of unity in the Republican Party. Um, he goes on to say, a quote, a Wall Street Journal piece saying current and former aides to Trump say the shift in popularity because Trump has kind of rebounded somewhat. And meanwhile, there's a new Quinnipiac poll out showing Biden at 33% approval. It may be an outlier. Other polls are showing high 30s, low 40s. But wowza, that's not a good sign if you're working in the White House. Anyway, Journal reports uh, that his constant, often provocative tweets tweets helped galvanize supporters but provided steady ammunition for his detractors. And that's what Dan Pfeiffer doesn't like. He wants, he says, just here's the summary of his view. Trump is the elephant in the room. It's simply impossible to avoid talking about a former president who is planning to run again while putting in place a plan to steal the next election, in Pfeiffer's view especially when that plan depends on electing Republicans. I don't know about you, but that seems like something the voters ought to know about. So it's a kind of a counterintuitive take. All right, number four. Barry Weiss, uh, the editor, opinion editor, who left the New York Times saying she'd been bullied and that there was no place on the Times opinion pages for more moderate to liberal views, uh, has a Substack column that not only has her very thoughtful views, but gets some really important contributions from others. And she's got a piece by two authors uh, that ran yesterday, I believe. And it's about Hollywood and diversity. And here's the lead of it. A few years ago, the editor-in-chief of The Hollywood Reporter pitched a story to the newsroom. He'd just come back from lunch with an agent who suggested the paper look at, take a look at the unintended consequences of Hollywood's efforts to diversify. Those white men who had spent decades writing scripts that had been turned into blockbuster movies and hit TV shows were no longer getting hired. Well, what happened? The newsroom blew up. Reporters, especially the younger ones, mocked the idea that white men were on the outs. Basically, the editor looked rattled. It didn't happen. And this goes into a much larger argument about um, kind of a backlash that no one wants to talk about. Because, look, you remember the uh, Oscars too white revolt when it turned out that uh, I think there was one year when either all 10 pictures or 9 out of the 10 were, you know, for 
pictures with white producers or, you know, the best actors and best actress nominees were mostly whites. And it's clear that Hollywood has and has had for a long time a diversity problem. And along came the George Floyd killing and the riots. And Hollywood said, uh, okay, you know, we're going to do something about this. And that actually was good. It was 2015, by the way, Oscar So White, engulfed the 87th Academy Awards. And so the Academy of Motion Pictures uh, decided it was going to bring in a lot more black and Latino and female members. Uh, And so it launched the Representation and Inclusion Standards Entry Platform, or RAISE. This is just in September of 2020. For a movie to qualify for Best Picture, you couldn't even get nominated. Producers not only had to register detailed personal information about everyone involved in the making of the movie, but the movie had to meet two out of four diversity standards, everything from on-screen representation to creative leadership. So on the one hand, that kind of sounds like a quota system. On the other hand, you know, Hollywood did have a huge problem. So now... The, the you know um, every there's a new acronym BIPOC, uh, which is Black, Indigenous, and People of Color, and the, now the everyone in Hollywood says, well, we want to make this movie. We need some BIPOC. You got any BIPOC people? And naturally, there's some resentment about that. And this does a very it's a very detailed, lengthy, and smart look at the inevitable backlash against this. Uh, How do you survive the revolution? By becoming an ardent supporter. One writer says, best way to defend yourself against the woke is to outwoke everyone else, including the woke. Suddenly, every conversation with every agent or head of content started with, is anyone BIPOC attached to this? Food for thought. Don't go anywhere. More BuzzMeter coming your way in just a moment. Okay, number five, let's wrap up with a little baseball. So the Washington Examiner has this piece. It uh, leads off with Oriole Park at Camden Yards, where I have seen many baseball games, especially during the years, the 33 years to be precise, when Washington had no team, which was just a complete and total injustice. Yes, the D.C. lost the Senators, both versions of the Senators, many, many years ago. So Baltimore's team kind of became Washington's team because it's in the same region. So the news now is that Camden Yards, this is a great ballpark built in the style of old-fashioned ballparks, almost like a throwback to Ebbets Field in Brooklyn. Uh, When the next season begins, the left field fence is being moved back by about 30 feet. According to this piece in the Washington Examiner, that's good, and other stadiums should follow suit. Why? Here's the argument. Um, Making the outfields longer makes it harder to hit home runs, and easier on pitchers. So, right now, there is an excess, this is fascinating, even if you're not a baseball fan, of strikeouts, home runs, and walks. Uh, In fact, out of every nine at-bats, it used to be two of those nine at-bats was either a home run, a strikeout, or a walk. Now it's three and a half out of every nine at-bats is one of those three outcomes, and that means you know, fewer uh, on-the-field plays, fewer foot races, fewer throws, fewer diving catches, and less excitement. You know, you hit a home run, great. It's great for your team. And the guy trots around the bases, and that's it. You strike out, you go to the, you go to the bench. There's no, the fielders are just standing there, right? And a walk also doesn't put anyone in play. So the feeling is, if we move the fences back, what would happen? 
Again, this is, I haven't thought this through, but this is um, the argument the author is making. First of all, fewer home runs would be hit because a lot of things that would now be home runs would be long infield, outfield flies. Um, hits that get past the outfielders would roll a lot longer, and that sets up a double or a triple. Um, also, um, the sluggers would become a little less valuable because many of their homers are becoming flyouts, uh, and some would be doubles. Batters who are faster would become more valuable because legging out a double or a triple would become more of a thing. Outfields would play deeper. That would mean more balls would drop in. Basically, it generates more offense, and it also takes some pressure off the pitchers. So maybe there would be fewer walks. Uh, I don't know if this is a great answer, but I do know that baseball is kind of in trouble. Uh, that baseball, I mean, right now, for example, there's a baseball lockout. There was a time when that would have been in the news every day. You know, just as there haven't been any talks between the players' union and the owners about what to do. But, you know, it always comes down to how you divide the pie and money for this coming season. But also, you know, in an age when so many people watch uh, basketball, football, of course, even tennis, and I haven't even gotten into Djokovic today because it's still a standoff, but whether he's going to be able to start in the Australian Open next Monday, he's been seeded, he's been put in the top seed in case he plays, but no final decision there. What a self-inflicted wound that whole mess was. But anyway, a lot of the younger kids aren't really watching baseball. The games go on too late. I don't think there's many kids are playing baseball, maybe more playing soccer and other things. And so, you know, overall, baseball faces a potential problem of not engaging a new generation of fans. And, you know, baseball has always been kind of a pastoral, slow game. There's no clock. You know, you can sit there and watch the pitcher, you know, step off the mound several times and the batter keeps stepping out of the box. I still think it's a great game of strategy and, you know, outwitting the other team. But that means, you know, whether you're doing a hit and run or somebody's hitting a double or a sacrifice fly or a bunt, it's all about moving the runners over to get more offense. If the game is mostly homers, not mostly, but significantly homers, walks, and strikeouts, you're not seeing the action. So I just think that's interesting. And maybe that's the reason that the Baltimore Orioles have decided to go in this direction. And maybe I'll make it down to Camden Yards this season and see how that's working out. Uh, great to talk to you as always. I wish you could just sort of press a button and tell me the things that you like, the things that you don't like, but you can leave a comment on Apple iTunes. Also, Google Podcasts on your Amazon device, Spotify, any place you can get podcasts, you can get this one. Uh, more people are listening, and that makes me spend more time preparing uh, to share this time with you. And we will share this time again tomorrow with the latest BuzzBeater. I'm Charles Payne. Listen to my Unstoppable Prosperity podcast so I can get you making money right now. Whether stocks are hitting new all-time highs or in free-fall mode, opportunities abound. So why are so many potential investors still sitting on the sidelines? In a new season of my podcast, I'm going to get you in the game. After 38 years on Wall Street, I'm ready to impart some lessons and get you invested in the greatest wealth-generating machine in history. Listen anytime, everywhere at foxbusinesspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast.